I have a question for you. When was the last time you found yourself just disengaged from the world around you and just in the world of your own thoughts? Just in the world of your own thoughts. You, you know what that looks like. Maybe you're driving down the highway, you don't have the radio on, and you're just thinking. Or you're outside, you're mowing the grass, and you're just thinking. Or you're finishing the dishes, or uh, you're looking deep into a campfire. It's a good time of year to be doing that. Or you might even have been sitting in Pastor Justin's sermon last week. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I just... He gave me a couple jabs last week, and so I had to give him some, some back. Um, well, whenever you drift off, whatever that looks like for you when you drift off into your thoughts, a recent study has shown that we, we don't like it, that, that when people are left to their own thoughts, they are remarkably less happy. Um, the study actually put some participants in an open, uh, quiet room without cell phones or pens, pencils, anything to distract them and gave them 15 minutes, just 15 minutes, to either think freely about whatever they wanted to think about or, or they gave them a prompt if they so chose to, to think about that. In both scenarios, about half of the people said they did not like the experience. <laughs> the researchers then decided to add a twist. They left the participants alone in the lab room with a button that, if pushed, would jolt them with an electric shock. Now, the interesting thing was that each participant, before they went into this room to be left there for 15 minutes with this button, said that they would actually pay money not to be given an electric shock. <laughs> 15 minutes is a long time to be left in your own thoughts and what the study found is that 67% of men and 25% of women actually chose rather to inflict themselves with the electric shock than to be left in their boredom, <laughs> to be left in their own thoughts. We do not like it. That's what this study's showing is that 67% that of men, 25% of women would find anything we can to distract ourselves from sitting in silence and solitude. And lucky for us, uh, most of us have devices that allow our brain to continually think, learn, be distracted, receiving new information all the times to give us shots of emotional highs and lows and to distract us from the world of our thoughts. But when was the last time you simply sat in your own thoughts? Well, this morning, we find Abraham in a familiar passage, but we find him on a long journey, most of it of which is in silence. There was no escaping the thoughts, the questions, the distressing situation that he found himself in. He couldn't pull out his cell phone to listen to a podcast about unsolved murders. No, he was given a command and had to walk a long road considering Am I actually going to obey? Am I going to follow through? And up to this point, Abraham's life has been one big yo-yo string just going up and down, obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience, believing, not believing. And now we meet Abraham again being called to trust and obey. And that's what we'll see that in the testing of his faith, the proof of that faith will be found in his trusting 
and in his obedience. And that's our big idea this morning, is that in the testing of faith, the proof of faith is trusting and obeying. That will be a common refrain we'll have in our time this morning. Would Abraham maintain faith in the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God through the roller coaster of experiences that he would endure? It's, it's after these things that we see his faith tested. Which brings us to our first main point this morning from our text, and that's this. Faith will be tested. Faith will be tested. This first point, we'll find ourselves majority of our time this morning. Verses 1 through 12 here hold the majority of the narrative, and in it, we are abruptly introduced to a situation, a scene, where we are told that God will be testing Abraham. So look back down at your copy of Scripture and read along with me in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham, and God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God tested Abraham. Notice with me that this occurrence of Abraham's response, here I am, is the first of three occurrences of this phrase in our chapter this morning. The first time, as we see here, he's being called to, to obey. He's, God's saying, hey, I want you to go. And he says, okay, here I am. The next time we'll see this phrase is in verse seven where Abraham is in the process of trusting God's hidden wisdom. The final time will be in verse 11 where Abraham has obeyed despite the multiple opportunities that he has had to turn back. In responding, here I am, Abraham shows at each step of the journey a humble submission to trust and obey whatever God is taking him through. What does God intend to do we read in this verse, he, well, he intends to test him. Not because God is mean, not to tempt Abraham to sin, not to push him to renounce his faith or to do harm to him, but to test him. For Abraham, it was to see what his faith was made of. For us, as we read it, it's to see what faith looks like in action. We could just as easily look at Job Satan intended to tempt Job to renounce God once all earthly blessings had been taken away. God, however, was testing. He permitted Satan to take his wife, his kids, his health, and even his wealth in order to see what Job's faith was made of. Same happened with Joseph. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what testing is. It reveals what you believe is really true about God. Do you believe that God is really trustworthy? That his intentions are really for your good? That he really can provide a way of escape from this or that temptation? That when I fail a test, he won't abandon me forever? Testing is not for God's benefit. <laughs> to see whether you're actually going to obey or not. With Abraham, God knew his servant well and was not worried about losing him. God is omniscient. He knows all and knew what Abraham was going to do, but testing is for us. It reveals to us what we truly believe about God. It's meant to strengthen our faith. It's meant to mature our spiritual character. If we obey, 
We are strengthened in what we believe and actually encouraged by how the Spirit has been transforming us. When we fail, not if, but when we fail, our weak spots are revealed. Again, what you really believe about God is revealed when faith is tested, when your faith is tested. Now, what do we mean by faith? Put simply, it's a confident trust. It's confident trust. A trust in what? Well, trust that God is who he says he is and will be who he says he will be and will do what he says he, will, he has said he will do. This is not blind belief. It's a standing on the firm grounding of history, showing that God fulfills his promises. We do this type of decision-making all the times in our lives and in, in business. In business, this is a strategy called behavioral interviewing. You might practice this in your work, which it basically says that the best indicator of future success is past success. One career counselor at MIT said that behavioral interviewing is basically a way for the hiring manager to see that the person is capable of accomplishing, uh, to see what they're capable of accomplishing based on actual past work performance. We basically do this with God. We look back at God's faithfulness in our lives, in scripture, and it gives us confidence that he is capable and willing to fulfill his promises toward us in Christ. So faith is our confident trust in God's faithfulness. It is what God intends to test, to reveal what we really believe. I want you to think about your life. Where has God tested you before? How is, how is he testing your faith in him even now? What's, what's been revealed so far to you? As we'll see in this chapter, there are three things that we can anticipate as our faith is being tested. The first of those things we should anticipate is that the testing may not make sense. The testing may not make sense to us. As our faith is being tested, what or who we really trust is being revealed to us. We find God's test begin in verse two, so let's look there. Would you look there with me? He, God is now speaking, said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. After Sarah gives birth and names Isaac in chapter 21 at the beginning, chapter 21. The next time, the very next time Isaac is mentioned is right here. He is to be sacrificed, slaughtered, and burned. <laughs> this son who was promised for 25 years that through him nations would come. <laughs> God says in chapter 21, verse 12, even to Abraham again, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. How does this make Sense, where is the sense in this? I'm sure Abraham is thinking, God, this seems contradictory to your own promises. But the question that God was seeking an answer to was this. Will Abraham's faith in who I have been and who I've said I will be outweigh his own wisdom right now? Will Abraham's faith in 
who I am outweigh his own wisdom right now. This is a clash between walking by faith and walking by sight, between God's revealed will and Abraham's will, between God's hidden wisdom and Abraham's wisdom. One commentator has said, Abraham's trust was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, and lifelong ambition in act against everything earthly. Think about that. I wonder where are you being called to trust God and obey him in, who li- in the light of who he is? Maybe it's as simple as waking up in the morning against your heavy eyelids to read your Bible to find out what his revealed will actually says. Maybe it's deciding against a job promotion because the salary is nice, but it might actually compromise on your morality or on your time with your family and church. Maybe it's coming to the realization that you have been enabling someone you love to continually make poor decisions. But I actually want you to do some homework this week, not just to hear these questions and move on as we go through the rest of our sermon. I actually want you to, if you are taking notes or have a phone with your notes app available, I actually want you to do some homework this week. I know we're just off of fall break at BCS, but I want you to answer the question, these two questions. First, what does trusting God look like for me right now? In your situation, what does trusting God look like for you right now? What truth, attribute, passage about God do you need to be trusting in right now? And second, how does trusting God in that way, in that circumstance, inform how you need to obey him right now? What does obedience look like in light of who God is? I want you to, this week, after you've taken some time in silence, to quiet your heart, Shut out the noise, songs, radio, everything, and consider what does it look like to trust God right now for me? And how does trusting God actually inform how I'm supposed to obey him right now? And I want you to find one other person here in this church, just one person this week from our church that you can share what God reveals to you. Ask them to pray with you and for you that you would trust and obey Testing may not make sense. But what do we see Abraham do? Well, the next morning, he wakes up early. This gives the indication of a resolve to face a difficult task. For Abraham, he was preparing to obey the command he received from the Lord. We should anticipate God's hidden wisdom may not make sense to us, and so we should prepare our hearts to trust him and to obey Not only should we anticipate that the testing may not make sense, we should also anticipate, second, that the testing may hurt. The testing may hurt. One commentator has said, God seemed to be Abraham's worst enemy. God seemed to be Abraham's worst enemy. (laughs) Maybe you felt like that before. Whether you have or you haven't, as we read in this next section, I want you to put on your empathy caps. 
I want y'all to just put it on. I want you to look and to read this as though you are in Abraham's shoes feeling what he might have been feeling. So look back at your copy of scripture with me to verse four, starting in verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there, worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. They both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Oh, do you feel the gut-wrenching experience that Abraham is in right now, here in this moment of testing? At the foot of the mountain, Isaac asks a sensible question. If we're gonna go do a sacrifice, God, Abraham, my father, where, where is the lamb? Abraham will respond before beginning the silent hike up the mountain. But his son, his only son, whom he loved, is being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open up his mouth again. Imagine the agony that Abraham is experiencing. Three days, 72 hours of journeying. That's a good amount of time for him to decide in his mind and his thoughts, ah, this isn't worth it. I don't wanna lose my son. I love him so much. Three days, yet he pressed on in obedience. Leaving behind the servants, they continued on in harmony. It wasn't as though Abraham went ahead and and Isaac followed him. It says in both verse six and verse eight, they both went together. They went side by side. Isaac respectfully addresses my father. And Abraham's response to Isaac is nothing other than tenderness. He says, Here I am, my son. Fear that Abraham is probably experiencing in this moment is not displayed in this response. He seems calm. He is trusting. Yet the heaviness and the certain sadness of this moment cannot be escaped. Abraham didn't have a device with which he could pull out and run and escape his thoughts and his feelings. (laughs) He didn't. He felt them. He felt every one. Imagine the agony of three silent days of journeying, thinking, trekking up a mountain with a beloved child in which the only words spoken on the trip are reminders of what are about to happen. There are no sports, no novels, no business, no reality TV, no news to distract you not even a button with an electric shock to take away, to take instead of sitting in your thoughts and feelings. For Abraham, this hurt. Not only the amount of time Abraham had to journey, but also the dreadful action that he would have to commit on the end of his journey. Can you see now why God may have seemed to be Abraham's worst enemy? Have there been times when you felt like God was your worst enemy? You know, you know your theology. You know that's not true. 
but in the experience of suffering and trials and tests, you come to think that God may in fact actually be your worst enemy. Does he actually care? Because this test doesn't really make sense if he does, and on top of that, it hurts. That's why the psalmist would cry out, how long, O Lord? And why another psalmist would express that his tears have been his food day and night. Abraham remembers who God is in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of this test, and responds to Isaac's question, God will provide. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham shows faith that God will fulfill what he has promised, even though this command didn't make sense, and it would hurt. Those two things we can't anticipate, but one thing we can expect. Third, the testing will require us to trust and obey. The testing will require us to trust and obey. After the silent climb up the mountain, we almost see the narrative slow down. Abraham and Isaac arrive. They arrive at the place on the mountain where they're to build an altar for the sacrifice. And there, Abraham, in steady silence, builds the altar, places the wood, binds Isaac on top of the altar, on top of the wood. The detail-by-detail description of this story enhances the mounting tension of the story. Is Abraham really gonna kill his son, his only son? Is he really gonna do it? And as Abraham lifts the knife, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says for the third time, here I am. The knife has been stopped. The angel then responds, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The boy was alive. The knife had been stayed. The test completed. Isaac was as good as dead. But he is alive. Abraham probably fell with a loving hug on his son and wept for he was alive. Abraham had passed the test. He had trusted and obeyed. These aren't two separate acts of faith though. These are two sides of the same coin. We don't have the option to trust some of the time and not obey, nor do we have the option to obey some of the time without trusting God for the outcome. Heard it illustrated like this. If Abraham had received the word from the Lord, hey, all right, uh, go and, and sacrifice Isaac. And he says, all right, I believe you. And God says, you're still standing there. And Abraham says, no, 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 I, I really believe you, absolutely. I actually believe that you can raise Isaac back from the dead. And God says, all right, go do it. You don't really trust if you don't obey. It's one thing to say and it's another thing to live like you believe it. Trusting always involves obedience. Obedience always involves trust. And that's, again, what testing does. It shows what you really believe about God, what is true about him. 
Is God sovereign enough for you to be obeyed? Is God good and wise enough to be trusted? When tested, Abraham's obedience revealed a confident trust in God. The author of Hebrews explains that actually Abraham believed that God was trustworthy. His promises could be trusted. He says this in Hebrews 11. Look up at the screen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Oh, the author of Hebrew concludes that actually Abraham believed in resurrection from the dead, that God could do it. Wait, is he, is he reading into scripture? Is he reading scripture rightly? You, you and I read Genesis 22. Did you see that in there? The author of Hebrews is a careful reader of scripture and caught something that you actually may have caught as well. As Abraham leaves the two servants to hike up the mountain with Isaac, did you catch what uh, he said? He said to the servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now it's difficult to see in the ESV, but these three actions are spoken in the Hebrews third, or first person common plural. Okay, so first person, go back to language class. First person singular is I. First person plural is we. Each one of these actions. So he says, I and the boy will go. We will worship. We will come again to you. In saying that he and Isaac would return, Abraham was showing that he believed that God would fulfill his promise no matter what he commanded Abraham to do. Whether he plunged the knife or something else happened, he trusted and obeyed that God will fulfill his promise. Abraham passed the test and his faith was strengthened. He laid aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, the doubt that clings so closely, and he ran with endurance the race that was set before him, looking forward to his promised redeemer, the founder and perfecter of his faith. But maybe after reading Abraham's successful obedience and trust here, you're sitting there actually maybe a little bit worried. What if I don't obey when the test comes? What if I make the wrong decision? Does that mean that I'm not saved? What, what if I end up walking by sight and not by faith? Maybe you're even thinking what the author of Hebrews writes. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brother and sister, God is not in the business of running off those who are his. Don't be discouraged. Look at how the writer of Hebrews actually encourages his listeners through testing. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
He disciplines. He tests the ones that he loves. If you are going through testing, that is actually a mark of God's love for you. And also, don't be discouraged. One of the greatest disciples of Jesus, Peter, was tested and and at the most crucial point of his life, denied Jesus three times. Faith will be tested. You can expect it. It may not make sense. It may hurt. But to faithfully endure the test, we'll need to trust and obey. So I'd encourage you again to consider, what does trusting look like for me right now? What does trusting in God look like for me right now? And how do I obey in light of that? What does obedience look like for me right now? Most of God's faithful servants in scripture were tested. And the result of genuine faith when it is tested is proven true. And this brings us to our second and final point from our text today, and that's this. Not only will faith be tested, but faith will prove true. Faith will prove true. Again, we're not talking about faith in Aunt Sally's cat to catch the mice in the garage. That's wishful thinking. Maybe confident. Nor are we talking about being part of the faith, just, just being in there and hoping for salvation as a result of that. That would be a, a Catholic understanding of salvation through the church. As, as long as I'm part of the faith, I'm saved. No, we're talking about a spirit-empowered personal trust in God's faithfulness to his covenants. And faith, real, genuine faith will be vindicated by its obedience. It will prove true. When tested, we can be confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It will be brought to completion, meaning that real, spirit-empowered faith will be sustained until Christ returns. And this is the point that James makes in chapter two of his letter. James argues that faith by itself, if it does not have works, that's dead. And so he goes on to explain that Abraham's faith, he actually brings up this testing of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain and he shows that Abraham's faith was proven true. It was vindicated. He actually uses the word justified, but it all means the same thing. It was proven true. He says this in James 2, 21 to 22, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Abraham had faith and he obeyed. He trusted and he obeyed. Faith was completed by his works. Now, we've been much in the experience of Abraham through his testing, and I think that's actually the main point of our text. And if you walk away not having put on your empathy cap and experiencing what Abraham might have experienced, you will have missed the point of this text. But also remember, I'm asking you personally, how are you going to trust God given your circumstances And in light of that, how is trusting God going to inform how you obey him right now? And there are three Ps, three theological truths that I want you to consider trusting. Propitiation, providence, and God's promise. I'll define propitiation in a second, but propitiation, providence, and promise. 
we can see that Abraham's faith is proven true, not just by his obedience, but by the substitution that was made for Isaac. Look at verse 13 with me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided a substitute. This substitute was the sign of God's love for Abraham. Abraham was called to give up his only son, the one whom he loved in an act of obedient trust that God was going to fulfill his promises and God returns to Abraham, not only his son, but also a ram as a substitute to offer back to God, to worship God with. Even though punishment for sin is nowhere really in view here in this story, a substitute given is a sign all throughout the Bible of God's love for his people. And this is a clear parable to John's description even of Jesus in 1 John 4.10. You'll see it up on the screen. He explains, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation from our sins. And so propitiation is a Bible word. And so we're not gonna avoid it. Propitiation is this, it means this. Jesus took the death you were gonna receive. He took the death you were gonna receive. The ram took the death that Isaac was going to receive. Jesus, kind of as a spiritual heavenly umbrella of sorts, you're, you're in a rainstorm, you have an umbrella, you're, supposed, you're normally gonna get wet. The umbrella absorbs it and deflects it, right? So Jesus absorbs and reflects, or deflects what is coming to us. That's propitiation. He is our heavenly umbrella. He receives what we deserve. Now, John the Baptist proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus came to be the substitute for all those who would repent and turn to him in faith. In this story, God provided Abraham and Isaac a ram. God will provide for himself the lamb. This fulfills what Abraham answered Isaac with. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And to you and me, Jesus is offering to be your substitute. Will you respond repenting, turning away from your sin and your self-wisdom and in your own will, will you turn from that in a confident trust to the good news that the Redeemer has come to save your rebellious heart from your just penalty? The offer is wide open. Will you respond? So that's propitiation. Next, providence. In the next verse, verse 14, we see Abraham call the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Abraham reaffirms that God has done the work of providing what only the Lord can provide, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. He provides it. He is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord who provides. This word provide here is where we get our word providence. Provide providence. A beautiful 
definition of what providence is can be found in the 16th century German catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. I wanna read it to you, but just as a note, the first song that we sang today, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death, if you go look up the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question and answer is basically what that song is singing. And it's a beautiful truth that my only hope in life and death is that, is that I am not my own, but I've been bought by the blood of Christ and belong to him. Okay, so we're back to, what, well, what does the Heidelberg Catechism have to say about providence? Well, okay, so I'd encourage you, it's a, it's a long answer, so I'd encourage you maybe take pictures or jot down some notes, but question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is this, providence is the almighty and ever-present, is that God is almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Oh, that, is, that is God's love for you. His providence is displaying God's love for you. What in this definition do you need to jot down and make sure you remember to trust this week? What meetings are you headed into where you need this truth? What conversations? What relational conflict? Trust and obey. Catechism goes on to show how we are able to actually to apply this and, and obey this truth in light of God's providence. So question 28 asks, well, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Answer 28, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have a good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move or be moved. <laughs> Is that your confidence? That a good God, a faithful God and Father, no creature will separate us from his love? that we are so completely in his hand, his fatherly hand, that without his will, we can either move or be moved. Well, God provides the sacrifice. We read on in verse, um, let's see, in verse uh, eight, oh, sorry, in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, we read there at the end, um, as it is said to this day, it, this is an interesting conclusion, obviously, at the end of this mountain scene. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, this, this is interesting because Mount Moriah does not show up again in the biblical record until 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Look at the screen, for there we read. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father. 
Okay, so what do we find? Solomon is building the first and most majestic temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Since the best evidence leads us to believe that Moses wrote the vast majority of the Pentateuch, the the, the first five books of the Bible, the most probable explanation for this saying, as it is said at the end of verse 14, is that an inspired editor during the period of Solomon's temple made sure to connect the provision that is depended on by the patriarch Abraham here on this mountain is the same provision that's needed on the Mount of the Lord, the, a, a moniker for the temple mount. And can I add one more detail that should cause the heart of faith to leap for joy. It was on the Mount of the Lord that provision was provided for our sin some 2,000 years ago. When Solomon's temple was destroyed, the Israelites uh, left and then returned from Babylon. They rebuilt the temple, but they built it in a different location than the original temple. The place where Solomon's temple was originally located, was a hill across the way, across a valley, in Jerusalem, in a place, a vicinity called Golgotha, or Calvary. Brothers and sisters, it was on the Mount of the Lord that, provide, that provision, that propitiation, that substitution was provided. In Revelation 5, John sees in the heavenly throne room the lion standing as, the, as a lamb as though it had been slain. And that lamb was Jesus, the lamb of God who took the place of all who would believe. The sacrifice has been provided. Brother and sister, he who did not spare his own son but gave us up for us all, gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God will provide because he is the God of providence. So we have propitiation, we have providence, and we have promise. Now, we have quite a few verses left, 15 through 24. Throughout the rest of the story here, the narrative kind of dissipates. We have a conversation where God reaffirms, he swears by himself that Abraham's offspring will be greatly blessed, greatly multiplied, and the nations of the earth would be certainly blessed by him, by his offspring. All this, he says, is because of Abraham's obedient trust in him. This reaffirmation is God's ratifying of the covenant. Another way to say that is his confirming or his establishing of the covenant with Abraham. The final genealogy at the very end where we saw a bunch of weird names uh, in chapter 24 is pointing forward to chapter 24. There's one name in there that's hugely significant and maybe you saw it. It's Rebecca. Chapter 24, we, we will see Isaac and Rebecca wed and thus God is keeping his promises. Now, there's one promise in the ratifying speech that God gives here that clues us to a past promise that has already been made and a future fulfillment in the coming Redeemer. God says, look back in, in your text at verse 17. It says, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The gate being the most vulnerable point of a city. That's where Abraham's offspring will decisively defeat the enemy. And with the previous uh, context of Genesis 1 through 11, we will understand that the real enemy is the serpent. 
And this would mean that the offspring of Abraham, whoever he would be, would strike a blow to the serpent's head. We have a reference to this in the New Testament. And you may have been already quoting it in your head where Jesus says that the church will actually participate in this defeat. He says, in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why can you trust and obey? Because God's inviolable promises, his unending promises, his unaltering promises in Christ because you have a God who makes amazing promises to you to never leave you, to never forsake you, to turn all things for good to those who love him, to complete the work he's already begun in those who are called according to his purpose. You will never, ever be worse off for having done the right thing. Will you, by faith, trust and obey when testing comes? Let's pray.